<laughs> All right. Well, welcome to another edition of, oh my God, I got a spot on my shirt. Oh man, that is so not cool. I need quality control here. Oh, oh. I hate the spot. Anyway, uh, welcome to another edition of 15 Minutes of Flame. <clears throat> I am your host, Robert Phoenix. And uh, wow, what, what do you say about that? that video <laughs> so this has been part of my deep dive around uh willie brown willie brown would never have a fucking spot on his shirt i'm sorry i i got i gotta get to a willie brown level of aesthetics here willie brown is my is my, is my new spiritual teacher not really but you got to admit like that's kind of weirdly impressive it's a it's a terrible video. It's a strange. Well, it's a, it, it's a terrible song. I'm just gonna say, it. I, if some of you like it, I I apologize. There 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 are some um, Jefferson Starship fans. I never really liked the Jefferson Airplane all that much. I think I liked the Jefferson Starship even less. Although there was a little period there, little period there. I think around maybe 19. 75 uh they had that album red dragon which i thought was kind of cool there was there was a song on there that i really liked other than that i just we built the city on rock and roll i mean yeah middle of the road drac by the way i used to deliver papers to the drummer's mother it's donnie baldwin who's from san jose and he and Mickey Thomas, of course, were in the Elvin Bishop band and they brought them over. Grace Slick reduced to a supporting um, cast member in the band at that time. Long way from, from being the ingenue, the uh, mystical ingenue of Monterey Pop with White Rabbit. Very different version of Grace Slick. Um, so it's interesting because you have Mick, as in Mickey Thomas, the singer, and then Slick, who is Willie Brown. But then you also have Grace Slick, who is in the Slick category. Right? It's like it's weird. And at that time, this is 1988. So he's well into his role of the. Uh, State Assembly. He, he is the dawn of the California State Assembly. Uh, and that's a, the, the video is so, so bizarre because you have a lot of kind of San Francisco related luminaries in that video. Bill Graham is in that video. The residents, the guys with the eyeballs, they're in that video. I actually got to know the residents or at least one of them from back in the, uh, Back in my digital music days, I actually did a deal with the residents to get all their uh, music on this service that I worked for. And um, so I got to know, you know, the whole idea was that nobody knew who they were. And, uh, well, I knew who they were, at least I knew one of them relatively well. I wouldn't say we were friends, but we, we talked and did business. But they were very bizarre. They were on another San Francisco label called Ralph Records which was super avant-garde. They had a group called Tuxedo Moon who were 
kind of mildly interesting. Um, I think they had Winston Tong. They did a lot of stuff with like puppet masks and they were very strange. They were very, very strange. Kind of interesting though. I'll, I'll never forget one night I was, I was um, asked because I was doing like this ambient DJ stuff and I had all this stuff ready to go. And I was asked to be a part of this um, like event with Winston Tong. He was reading his poetry and, um, and I was supposed to do some kind of ambient thing. So I got there, I had an amp, I had, I had everything set up. I had like a little mixer and they were so unorganized at this club. It wasn't really a club. It was like a cafe, but they had no sound system. So they had to use my equipment and Winston Tong was like super late. And he was, he was, so I don't know if he was a junkie then, but he was, a, he was a junkie. And he came, I think he was, he was like really fucked up when he came out and he basically did about, I don't know, an hour, 15 minutes of uh, forgettable poetry. And I'm like, okay, well, are you, am I going to do my thing here now? Am I going to, am I going to doodle music? And um, I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. And then they closed up like 10 minutes later. What a waste of time. Anyway. Yeah. So the residents were on Ralph records and they had another guy by the name of um, Philip Lithman who uh, went by the name of snake finger. And then they had another uh, group called yellow. I think they were from Europe somewhere. It was a strange label. San Francisco is a strange place. Very strange. Anyway, so the residents are in the video, which is weird. You got Bill Graham, which, yeah, of course, he's he's there. Um, Pat Paulson shows up. He's in there. Then there's this weird uh, group that hangs. I'm sure they're still around. They're from the Castro. They're called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You'd always see them around and like these guys dressed up as, I don't know, gothic nuns out of the uh, new romantic kind of world from England. They had that vibe about them. But then there's that scene with Timothy Leary and G. Gordon Liddy. Doesn't matter if you're left or right. And they're like pointing at each other and like the jokes on you because they were going around the country and they were doing these, debates about uh, society. It's just a couple of ex-CIA guys, right? I mean, that's really what it was. Is two ex-CIA guys going out on tour. And then G. Gordon Liddy had his own radio show for a long time. It was pretty, pretty popular. So there you go. Laying it on the line. That shows you like the power, the reach, and the kind of the rock star status that Willie Brown had when he was the assemblyman for uh, the state of California, probably, probably the, he, he probably had more power or he was probably on an equal with Jerry Brown. That's what I would say. He was probably on equal footing because Brown couldn't do the things that 
It's funny that they were both named Brown too. I just, I just realized that you had Jerry Brown and Willie Brown and um, Jerry Brown was a, he was an Aries and Willie Brown, Pisces, 29 degrees. I'm going to, I'm going to pop Willie Brown's chart in just for a minute, just so you can see like um, how the guy operates astrologically. Now I am starting to uh, post these streams as podcasts. So if you are listening to the podcast, um, I encourage you to come to the website, which is 15minutesofflame.com, and you'll be able to see these streams live. You'll be able to see a lot of the things that I'm talking about. So this is a new thing I just started yesterday. And uh, I'm already up on, uh, what, what am I up on now? I think I'm up on Amazon. Uh, what else? Um uh, iHeartRadio, I think I'm on iHeart. I'm pretty sure. Um, Google Podcasts. So I'm, I'm on all these different networks now. Although for a brief minute, I was on Stitcher. I'm like, oh, because I you have to basically go in, sign up, and throw your RSS link in there. So I was on Stitcher, and then I, I went in, and maybe like a few hours later, I realized that I was no longer on Stitcher. <laughs> Like, well, that was fast. So I think there's going to be some attrition with this, but I think I will pass, slip through some of the other uh, podcast uh, distributors. So if you are listening to this in the podcast, I encourage you 9-11, Monday through Thursday, 15 minutes of flame. That's ovflame.com. It's trying to expand. Oh, I'm on Spotify. Better watch your ass, Joe Rogan. I'm coming after you. I'm punching up. If you're going to punch, punch up. Don't punch down. It's bad form. Uh, let's check in with you guys. Let's see where you're at. Let's see what's going on with you. I changed the uh, the color here, the color scheme. I know a lot of you were having uh, epileptic seizures around the color scheme, so I changed it. And I'm going to keep this chat for a while just, just to see how it works out. I looked at it on my cell phone. It actually looked pretty good. I mean, that's kind of the test. So let's see. We got Kelly B. She's here. I have to, uh, I have to miss some of the start of the morning. Pesky Zoom meeting. Okay, you got to do what you got to do. Much easier on the eyes. I, you know, Kelly, you speak, I listen. Thor at the door. What's going on? Fantastic full moon last night. Yes, it certainly was. Uh, took my little daughter out to see with me. Oh, cool. Dr. Artis. The Dr. Artis show. Not familiar. This is burnt sienna. Does it, does it meet your standards, Robin? Robin was having a seizure yesterday with this. Uh, let's see. Wendy says, here she is. Gucci to go. It's what's happening. Sony. It's good to have you back, Sony. Anyone else experiencing big storms today? No, we're clear and sunny. Some wind. Uh, let's see. You got rain, rain, rain down in uh, the Carolinas. You can see. Uh, Maurice says, and the current news looks like to me is the tyrants up in Ottawa about to making their over move. Could be. The world is watching. Even Jason Whitlock now is talking about the truckers. He had a he had a guy from Canada on his show last night, uh, who is 
he was he was brought onto I think a Canadian network, some kind of broadcast network, mainly because he was black, but he wasn't I guess the right kind of black, so they kicked him off the network. They wanted, hey man, can you just move a little further to the left, okay? Just lighten up on that on that truthy stuff. Just move a little further to the left. That didn't really work out. He wrote a book about it. Cool guy. And then he had this uh, other guy on his show. He's a trucker from the from the United States, and uh, it's 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 just great. He's a young guy, thirty two, um, and Jason remarked, "Well, you know, uh, you don't see you don't see a lot of black truckers." <laughs> And the guy, you know, they had, a, they had an interesting conversation, but he was really into, uh, very into Jason and the program. So when Jason Whitlock starts paying attention to the whole trucker thing, it's like, oh, that's that's interesting. He's making the connection between uh, the truckers and January 6th. And um, so hold the line. I don't care if it's AstroTurf. You just hold the line, do your thing. I see the link did not uh, go live in the chat. Is Pat King this morning, eight minutes on. Okay. Looks like it's there. Um, let's see who else we got. Hucklebuck. What's going on, Hucklebuck? Good to see you. Beth Barry in the house, Miss Nakia Ampaf. Who else do we have? Uh, I need a PA. I need quality control. Where's Jasper? He's right here. Let's see. Mickey T. Mickey Thomas. I don't, yeah, he's got that really high kind of register. It's not my favorite voice, but I am digging the new look. Good. Everybody loves to have Sony back. That's great. It is good to have her back. What's up, JJ? Good to see you. I'm looking sharp except for the stain on my shirt. Uh, let's see. By the way, personal assistant. Not physical assistant. I could probably use both. Spotify. Yeah, it's just a it's just another podcast, one of thousands on Spotify. Uh, you guys like it. Okay. You're I'm getting uh I'm getting some good feedback with the chat. Jasper is color coordinated. He is. I didn't even think about that. All right. So why don't we get into the bulk of the show? Because there's a lot to cover today. The background is specific because it is uh, Pacific Heights. We're going to talk a lot about San Francisco society. And um, the first part of the of the show is kind of wrapping up Willie Brown. And uh, mostly it's going to focus on Kamala Harris because um, she is Willie Brown's baby monster. And um, she is so. So if if we're looking at San Francisco as this cauldron for this uh, time that we're in now, and all these elements are being cooked up, you have this whole idea of progressive politics, which really takes hold with a very diverse voter base. They're tapping into it. Um, they're also using that as a stepladder for political position and power. And out of that miasma comes Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, Gavin Newsom, 
and Kamala Harris. Those are, those are really the big four. Willie Brown is in there, but the other four have like longer term reach and particularly Harris who winds up um, becoming vice president, as we all know. So I'm going to focus mostly on Kamala Harris today because her rise is synonymous with San Francisco society. Uh, when I say society, I'm talking about high society. Um, power and beauty and glamour and politics, all you know, kind of synthesized into this, how do I say this? Um, it's, it's a cult, it's, 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 it's a culture. Um, it's, it's a, it's almost borderline religion. I mean, I mean, you can, you can see this kind of, um, dot connecting where, where power and, uh, politics and social issues all get blended together and synthesized and, and, and it has the trappings of a type of religion. And what I, what I mean by that is that it's almost as if the high society and the hoi polloi of San Francisco have this progressive and political side as a way to assuage their, um, you know, white guilt, privilege, to feel good in some ways about how much they have. You could kind of see where, you know, this trends. It's, it's like, okay, we have all this money, we have all this privilege, and we have all this power. So why don't we do these things to kind of offset uh, the, uh, the what, what some people would call the gross materialism of our of our status. And a lot of it is driven by women, not coincidentally. The men play a role, of course, because a lot of them are the breadwinners, but this is, you know, this is old San Francisco money. This is not new San Francisco money. So Kamala Harris gets launched into this world. And she's launched into this world with her relationship with Willie Brown. And Willie Brown is a state assemblyman. He's married and dating her at the same time. I think at Willie Brown's chart. Let's just take a look at that really quickly. So again, if you are listening to this on one of the podcasts, you'd be able to see this. And we do talk about astrology here from time to time during the week. So let's, let's bring up this chart. I mean, you could clearly see his, uh, his style. Like, look, he's a Libra rising and he's got Jupiter and Libra on the ascendant. I mean, come on. That's the negotiator. That is the negotiator. And Jupiter makes him larger than life. Retrograde is interesting. You know, it might have something to do with his roots and where he comes from with poverty. Um, and maybe him remembering that. But this is a guy that, you know, he lives big. And the, the master negotiators right there with Jupiter and Libra. Remember yesterday we were talking about his work ethic 
He's got his son at 29 Pisces, and then there's Mars and Aries. So you can see in the sixth house, you can see the work ethic. It's, it's, it's totally there, right? He's going to have strange relationships, unusual relationships, unusual alliances with Uranus um, in the seventh house. And you, you could see that because he would cross party lines and he would make deals with Republicans. And he's got Pluto on the midheaven. Like that's tenacious. It's super tenacious. And um, he's got, you know, ultimately he's going to achieve what he wants. And cancer tends to be populist because you're dealing with roots related issues, families, uh, women, security, all those things. So uh, he's definitely got a big power trip going on. He's got a Pluto Jupiter square, which means he's a gambler. He's a risk taker. And most of his gambles have paid off. You can also see his kind of bizarre um, sexuality where he's got Venus and Aquarius and the true note in Aquarius. And it's in the fourth house, but it's kind of ingressing into the fifth. He's got Saturn in the fifth. So, you know, Willie Brown's idea of fun is achievement. And also Saturn the fifth means he, he could be an older paramour to younger women, right? Which is clearly the relationship between he and Kamala Harris. And you can see the Saturn Venus conjunction. So he was with Harris when he was still technically married. Um, and he's got Mercury and Pisces in the fifth house. Not in incredibly well aspected Mercury moon square the Neptune Mercury opposition is interesting because he's definitely somebody who is a bit of a dreamer to be able to start in a kind of a shithole like Mineola, Texas and make your way to San Francisco and do what he did in order to get a college degree and, and, and all those things. That's a Neptune Mercury opposition. That like Neptune is the dream, but it also it also has a lot to do with promises that can be unkept as well. That's kind of interesting. And he's got secrets with that moon in Gemini in the eighth house. Secrets around money, other people's money, his emotions. I think this is where he swings here and here, right there. Venus true node conjunction. So he's got that South node in Leo, which means that he's done the Leo thing before. And, you know, what's interesting is that if you look at the nodes and what he does is he builds coalitions. It's exactly what he does. So he's living his, his nodal experience. Anyway, just a quick look at Willie Brown's chart. So we're going to, we're going to zoom in on uh, Kali Ma here and her ascendancy. And I'm going to try to move through this pretty quickly because once you go down this rabbit hole, it just gets nuts. It gets totally freaking nuts. Um, because I do want to go back and circle back to Jim Jones. And then I want to talk about this other group, which doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's one of the, it's a, it's a group that's connected with Delancey Street. And the group is called Synanon, which I think is another one of these CIA-funded projects into mind control. And you'll, I'll, I'll show you that. Synanon 
one of Synanon's members, John Marr, comes out of Synanon and starts Delancey Street with some of these Synanon-like principles, which we'll talk about. But then Synanon moves into the Bay Area and starts buying all this property in Marin County. And I think there is also this connection with like mind-controlled assassins. It's, it's, a, it's another one of these chapters in California and San Francisco where you see these deep roots of mind control, um, the, the uh, organization of like cult thinking, cult ideology, brainwashing. I mean, the, the, so that's one of the things that comes out of Synanon is a, basically a three-day intensive where they brainwash people. Well, and I'll try to talk about that. All right, let's get going. Let's, let's jump into the, uh, the high society that supported Kamala Harris and her rise to um, fame and fortune and the vice presidency of the United States. So there she is, Kali Ma. And this is from uh, Politico. Yeah, it's a pretty established website for things like this. How San Francisco's wealthiest families launched Kamala Harris. At splashy weddings, charity balls, and all the right restaurants, she hobnobbed with San Francisco's money to elite and made lasting allies who backed her at every stage of her political career. So this is from 2019. This is not that long ago. San Francisco, in the summer of 1999, the money Napa Valley north of here, a bejeweled bride rode side saddle on a speckled horse into what the press would label the Bay Area's version of an outdoor royal wedding. The lavish nuptials of Vanessa Jarman and oil heir Billy Getty, replete with red carpet, hundreds of flickering votives. You guys saw those those um, pictures. Nancy Pelosi's there. Nobody's wearing masks. Remember that? Okay. Oh, that's a different one. That's ninety. That that was the one that was last year. That's a different Getty. My bad. This is from nineteen ninety nine. So it's a, it's another eyes wide shut kind of affair but apparently outdoors. Um, flickering votives and a fair amount of wine. According to one deadpan attendee featured a 168-person guest list stocked with socialites and science, philanthropists, and other assorted glitterati. This coterie of the chosen included, as well, a 34-year-old prosecutor who was all of a year and a half into her job in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. And she wasn't just some celebrities, but all but anonymous plus one. She was featured in the photo coverage of the hot ticket affair, smiling white, decked out in a dark gown with a drink in hand. Kamala Harris, the caption read, cruised through the reception. Well, before she was a United States Senator or the Attorney General of California, Harris was already in with the in crowd from 1994 when she was introduced splashily into the region's most popular newspaper column as the paramour of, of one of the state's most powerful politicians to 2003 when she was elected district attorney, the Oakland and Berkeley bred Harris charted the beginnings of her ascent in the more fashionable crucible of San Francisco and Pacific Heights. That's the era behind me. By the way, I'm kind of blocking the uh, Palace of Fine Arts. That fine building is just on the other side of my couch.
In Pacific Heights, parlors and bastards of status and wealth and trendy hotspots and the juicy, dish, dishy massives of the variety of gossip columns that chronicle the city's elite. Kamala Harris was a bold-faced name, born and raised in more diverse and far less affluent neighborhoods on the other side of the bay. Let's be clear. She didn't grow up in poverty, all right? She just didn't grow up in Pacific Heights. Harris was the oldest daughter of immigrant parents. Makes it sound like she's... <laughs> you know, whenever we think of like this uh, term immigrant parents, we think of Ellis Island and people coming over and changing their names and, and uh, you know, having these little tiny suitcases and moving into these hovels uh, in uh, Hell's Kitchen in New York City. I mean, the, you know, we're, that's what, that's, those are the images that this idea of immigrants sort of, you know, projects into our consciousness, at least for most of us. Um, but that's not Harris, okay? Let's just be clear about this. Her father is a teacher at, it's a professor at Stanford. Her mother's a researcher. So it's, it's not like she's running around in uh, rags, okay? It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not part of the story. Um, as a um, parents reared in a family that was intellectual, but not privileged or rich. You know, your professor at Stanford. I don't, I don't know too many people who are professors at Stanford. That's kind of privileged in some ways. As a presidential contender running against opponents who openly disdain elites and big money, she has emphasized not only her reputation as a take-no-prisoners prosecutor, but also the humbleness of her roots. A child of civil rights activism, a busing, which is a bunch of bullshit, especially the busing part. So proud, as she said at the start of her speech announcing her candidacy, to be a child of Oakland. So here are some photos of her. So again, if you're listening on the podcast, you can see there she is looking pretty glamorous, drink in hand. This is the Getty Jarman wedding in Napa Valley. Her rise, however, was propelled in and by very a very different milieu in this less explored piece of her past. Harris used as a launching pad the tightly knit world of San Francisco high society, navigating early on this rarefied world of influence and opulence, charming and partying with movers and shakers, ably cultivating relationships with VIPs who had become friends and also backers and donors of every one of her political campaigns, tapping deep into deep pockets and becoming a popular figure in a small world dominated by a handful of powerful families. This stratum of San Francisco remains a profoundly important part of her network, including not just powerful Democratic donors, but an ambassador appointed by President Donald Trump, who ran in the same circles. Harris, now 54, often has talked about the importance of having a seat at the table, of being an insider instead of an outsider. She learned that skill in this crowded, incestuous, famously challenging political, political proving ground, where she worked to score points at some of the city's most sought-after tables. In the, mid to 19, in the mid to late 90s and into the aughts, the correspondents who kept tabs on the comings and goings of the area's A-listers noted where Harris was, what she was doing, and who she was with as she advanced professionally, jumping from Alameda County to posts in the offices of the district and city attorney across the bay. She was a trustee, too, the Museum of Modern Art and active in causes concerning AIDS and the prevention of domestic abuse and out and about at fashion shows and cocktail parties. 
and galas and get-togethers at the most modish boutiques. She was in the breezy, buzzy parlance of these kinds of columns, one of the pretty things. She was a rising star. She was rather perfect, and she mingled with spiffy and powerful friends who were contemporaries as well as their even more influential mothers and fathers. All this was fun, but it wasn't unserious. It was seen and being seen with a purpose, society, activity, with political utility. So here she is in kind of her more um, political, um, how do I say this, political stances, right? She's got, she's got this kind of fiery activist side of her, but then she's also got the, the lead social, socialite, socialist and socialite. That's kind of how you would describe Kamala Harris which in many cases would describe a lot of socialists, the Neiman Marxists. Because three years after the Getty wedding in mid-2002, Harris called Mark Buell. She knew him because Harris was friends with his stepdaughter, Summer Tompkins Walker, the daughter of Susie Tompkins Buell, the major Democratic donor. Harris told him she wanted to run for district attorney. At first, Buell was skeptical. He said recently when, when we got together for dinner, at an old Union Square home called Sam's, he considered Harris a socialite with a law degree. He explained over Salmon and Sauvignon Blanc. The more Harris talked, though, the more impressed he became. By the end of their conversation, Buell offered to become her finance chair. His first piece of advice to knock off an incumbent in what would be a nasty three-party candidate fight. Um, I think that was Terrence Hallinan as one of the candidates. Harris was going to need to raise an early eye-popping amount of money. Buell saw her friends, people he knew too, as an asset to deploy. So we put together a finance committee that primarily was young socialite ladies. He told me these are, you know, sort of the um, the white socialite liberal um, coterie that in many ways we could see the morphing of, you know, their position, their prominence, and their privilege you can see the morphine and you can see the, 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 the filtering down of their influence either advertently or inadvertently to like maybe upper class and middle class women who would represent in many ways, the same kind of ideology that they would only they would be, in a significantly different class, right? So in a lot of ways, again, we're seeing this mold that is being cast in San Francisco. And make no mistake, you know, Kamala Harris was there because she was pretty. Um, she was a professional, like she was a lawyer. If she was, if she was a receptionist for one of these people or a secretary for one of these power people, she, she wouldn't be allowed in. You know, she had a she had a pedigree. Her father taught at Stanford. She you know, she could bust that out, right? Her mother was from India, and she could tell stories about, you know, uh, her mother's connections with, you know, political dissidents, like you know the 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 socialist kind of cadre in India. You know, tales about her grandfather being kicked out of India because he was too radical and having to go. To, I mean, these are the type of things that that group would love. She was just a pretty thing and a receptionist or a secretary. 
they wouldn't have allowed her in. Now that's part of it. The other part of it is that in a lot of ways, San Francisco is a very liberal city and, and it doesn't necessarily matter. And you can see here if you're black or white, although I think Willie Brown is far more black than Kamala Harris. I think Jason Whitlock said that what she's 20% black or something like that, whatever. But in their world and in their minds, she is different. She's exotic. Um, and in a weird way, she kind of meets this stereotypical racial quota, right? Like it, 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 they're going to bring her into their world. She's got the bona fides in a lot of ways. She's attractive. I think what, what's her, um, she's a Libra. She's a Libra, so she's charming and and she's a Gemini rising, so she can be in a number of different worlds. So she could be the, you know, the hardcore activist, but then she could throw on a $500 gown and go hang out with the Hoi Polloi Pacific Heights. But I do feel like in some ways that there is this idea of like white guilt. Like they're letting her in, not just because she's pretty and she has these connections with people who are not average. Like her parents are not average. She doesn't come from a working class environment like Willie Brown does. But there are those things, but there's also this other factor that has to be discussed. It's like, okay, well, you know, we're going to embrace somebody who's different than us. And we like her because she's beautiful and she's elegant and uh, she's an up and comer. And I mean, again, if you look at Kamala Harris, she's kind of light skinned. She's not going to be like so black that they're going to be, whoa, whoa. You know, she's, she, she passes the eye test and she passes the sort of the liberal progressive litmus. So she's a very singular character that moves into this world and is accepted and is accepted for all the things that I just mentioned. And, and again, because she represents this breath of fresh air. That's what, that's how they see her. Like they see Kamala Harris as the apotheosis of what they would deem to be their liberal or progressive dream and ideology. So in a lot of ways, she's their ideological child. Um, she's the prodigal daughter that comes home to them. So let me keep going here. So we put together a finance committee that was primarily young socialite ladies. He told me the group included Vanessa Getty, by then one of Harris's closest pals and Susan Swig, head turning names, surnames in the city's choice of circles, Buell's directive. I said, no one has ever raised more than $150,000 for a DA's race, totally. I want this group to raise $100,000 by the first reporting period. Outfitted in sharp designer suits and strands of bright pearls, 
Harris kickstarted her drive to become San Francisco's top cop in its ritziest and most prestigious locale, predominantly white Pacific Heights. Hills upon hills, gobsmacking views of the Golden Gate Strait. Mansions built and bought with both new tech money and old gold rush, rush cash. Is home to Nancy Pelosi, Diane Feinstein, and Gavin Newsom. There we go. Those are the big four. And others, one of the country's foremost concentrations of politicians and their patrons, including the Buells. In late 2002, this became a campaign routine. Buell recalled 30 to 50 people in a room, cocktails, a nice introduction by the host, and then Kamala would make her pitch. And then we'd go around with the bag and collect money. So this is the uh, the Gazette, and this is kind of the up-and-coming, or even not up-and-coming, but just the who's who of San Francisco society. Now, I don't know if the rows here are uh, related to hierarchy, but you can see right there, that's Gavin Newsom. And he's top center in this pictorial. He is top center. That's no mistake, by the way. And then just off to his right is Kamala Harris. Boom, right there. And that down here is Gordon Getty. These are just a few recognizable name, uh, faces. All right, so let's keep going. A well-qualified prosecutor with a lot of ties to the Pacific Heights crowd, Harris should have no trouble raising money, the San Francisco Chronicle noted. That November, and so it was, by the close of the calendar year, Harris had raised $100,560, nearly 23% of which came from the three zip codes of Pacific Heights. It's a roster of early donors that reads like a who's who of the city. The crowd really got her started to be taken seriously, Buell said. These people who seeded the start of Harris's political career got something in return as well. You always had the feeling she was going somewhere, Dee Dee Wilsey told me. Wilsey is a stalwart fundraiser and a philanthropist, the widow of real estate bigwig Alfred Wilsey, and a Republican who nonetheless is a Harris supporter and friend. You might want to go along for that ride too. So they saw something in her that they knew was potential star quality. And again, I, I, I think this idea of this young, glamorous, supposedly black woman who was on a political rocket ride, connected to Willie Brown, gave them a nice warm and fuzzy feeling on the inside. Harris, whose campaign did not respond to a request for comment for a story, for a story, put her headquarters in Bayview. Now that's really interesting. Bayview's out kind of by Candlestick Park. And it's a um, clearly economically depressed, mostly black neighborhood. So that's hair. I mean, this, this is the model for these people. Like they'll have one foot in one world, which kind of gives them their bona fides. Like, okay, I'm down with the people. These are, this is my base, but then there's another foot in this. Willie Brown was a master at this. And this goes back to George Moscone and what, what he would do. And Kamala Harris is no different. A poor neighborhood six or so miles south of Pacific Heights and a world away. And she would earn the backing of a swath of the city's black, Chinese, and LGBT leaders. So she's cultivating the demographic base. 
she's cultivating the economic base. This is the story of San Francisco. This is how it works. And it would, it's no different than somebody who would be, say, from Dallas, and they would cultivate oil money in Dallas, and they would cultivate the, you know, the, the, the conservative, maybe to some degree, uh, Christian demographic of Dallas and blend the two together, right? So it's just, it's all based on demographics, money, and power. And this is San Francisco's version of it. Uh, but in January 2003, she was also on the cover of the Knob Hill Gazette, the monthly paper of record for San Francisco society, one of the faces in a collage of people deemed to be the creme de la creme. Harris said the Gazette may be our next EA. 11 months later, it was true. So there she is with Willie Brown. Now, he wasn't the mayor yet. Their relationship would end before he would become mayor. There's Brown and Pelosi. So they're all, it's all incestuous. Now, Herb Cain is an important player in San Francisco politics, and he was a buddy of Willie Brown. So Herb Cain, Willie Brown, Wilkes Bashford, Terrence Hallinan, Roger Boas, um, who else? Who else am I leaving out here? Oh, Dick Bloom, uh, George Moscone. I think the Burtons might have been in that mix too, but those guys were... They, they they were San Francisco's Rat Pack. And they they were, uh, you know, heavy drinkers. There was a lot of cocaine being snorted during that time. Um, and they were, they also whored around. And, and things got like heavy and weird when Roger Boas was busted for being at this brothel for 13 year olds this is a guy that ran i think boas ran for mayor he was another one of these car dealers in san francisco he got busted for you know being at this brothel for underage girls so if he was going there you can rest assured that a lot of these other guys were going so again it's the seamy underbelly of san francisco and they're indulging in power hedonism and they're all incestuous. And Herb Cain plays a really big role here because Herb Cain could promote you. He could make you. He could break you. And Herb Cain was really tight with Willie Brown. So this is towards the end of Herb Cain's. He wrote a column, big column in San Francisco for 60 years. Uh, Kamala Harris, an Alameda County deputy DA, who is something new in Willie's love life, Herb Cain wrote in his column in the San Francisco Chronicle in March 22nd. 1994, making public her romantic relationship with Willie Brown, who was still married, albeit long as strange, 30 years older than Harris, and by then approaching a decade and a half into his unprecedented reign as Speaker of the California State Assembly. She's a woman, not a girl, King continued with his signature three-dot style, and she's black because Willie had hung out with a fair number of non-black women. Dot, dot, dot. Beyond the wince-worthy language, it's hard to imagine in that time and space a more spotlit debut. Kane, for his part, was at the tail end of a non-parallel, nearly 60-year career, six days a week. He two-finger typed a thousand or so of the most read words in San Francisco. If you put your name in boldface, you 
you'd get calls from everyone you knew saying, I saw you in Herb Kane today. Jesse Hammond, one of uh, his former assistants, told me, if your name wasn't in there, you were nobody. Longtime local press agent Lee Housekeeper added, in his columns, Kane called Harris attractive, intelligent, and charming. He called her a steadying influence for Brown. And in December of 1995, when Brown was elected mayor, Kane called her the first lady in waiting. Brown, meanwhile, is one of Kane's best friends, and his mayorality would cap a lengthy career in which he proved to be one of the shrewder getters, keepers, and users of political power of the last half of the 20th century. The dapper, hyper-connected, bon vivant, and unashamed showman wore pricey Brioni suits and drove fast, fancy cars. Brown didn't want to talk to me for the story, but he once wrote, being able to cross over into white community, into the white community, is essential for any black female or male to succeed as a political figure. I suggest black women lay the groundwork by looking to become active on the boards of social, cultural, and charitable institutions like symphonies, museums, and hospitals. It's the way to get respect from a world that otherwise is content to eschew or label you. You have to demand the opportunities to enter these worlds. Well, that's exactly what Kamala Harris did. She was on all those committees. So she was following his directives pretty closely. It's hard to think honestly about the origins of the rise of Harris without grappling with the reality of the role of Brown. He helped her. He put her on a pair of state boards that required not much work and paid her more than $400,000 across five years on top of her salary as prosecutor. He gave her a BMW. He helped her too, though, in a way that was less immediately material, but arguably far more enduringly important. Brown, of course, was the darling of the well-to-do set, if you will. Veteran political consultant Jack Davis, who managed Brown's mayoral campaign, told me, and she was the girlfriend. And so she met, you know, everybody who's anybody as a result of being his girl. I met her through Willie John Burton, the former San Francisco congressman and chairman of the Democratic California Democratic Party, said in an interview, I think it's fair to say that most of the people in San Francisco met her through Willie. He was the guy that put her right in the ballgame, said Don Adario the chief investigator for the district attorney, whom Harris ultimately would topple. He made her, Davis said. Many people bristle at this, castigating such sentiments as tired, sexist, and racist, rightly pointing out that Brown dispensed favors and counseled hundreds of aspiring politicians, and only one of them currently, a U.S. senator, is running for president near the head of the heap. Look, Rebecca Prozan, Harris's campaign manager, said in 2003, told me, those of us that want to be in public service and elected capacity can be used by people who are in public office, taken around town. And there's a whole host of us that have had that opportunity and it didn't work out for us. There has to be something special about her. Yeah, we kind of knew what's special about her. Kamala Harris was plenty capable of pressing anyone she met on all her own, said PJ Johnson, a consultant in San Francisco and a former Brown press secretary and did so frequently. Harris broke up with Brown shortly after he won the election to be mayor. She ended it, Brown told Joan Walsh, writing for the San Francisco Magazine in 2003. I actually, I was, I, it's interesting. I, uh, I worked for San Francisco Magazine back in the 80s because she concluded there was no permanency. And I, so I was connected in a weird way to this world through San Francisco Magazine. And there was this guy, what was his name? Um, Mo. Mo Bernstein, Mo Bernstein. So we did this special on uh, power in San Francisco. Who had it? 
It was called the power of the power uh, issue. And Art Agnes was on the cover. So they raided all these people in San Francisco got all this power. And this guy, Mo Bernstein was like one of the top 10. So I was responsible for setting up these photo shoots for these people on the power list. And he was, he was one of them. So I went with this guy, Alex or Alec, who was a photographer. He was actually a really good photographer. He took the photos at my wedding. Anyway. Um, so I met some of these people and one of the people I met was Mo Bernstein. He was like a kingmaker in San Francisco. And we sat down and we talked and Alec did this photo shoot. He was kind of an interesting guy. He was this old Jewish guy. He was kind of interesting. And we talked, we talked a little bit about Willie Brown and he just shook his head when his name came up. And he said, he had so much promise, so much promise. And he was basically lamenting that Willie, Willie, I didn't, I wouldn't say he reneged, but he took advantage of power. That's what he was talking about. He took advantage of the power that he accrued. And Bernstein, I think, was another one of these guys, not just the Burton brothers, that was um, instrumental in the creation of Willie Brown. And I remember he, he, he said, why don't you come by for lunch one of these days? And I'm thinking, oh, man, that'd be kind of cool. He seems like an interesting character. I didn't last that much longer at the magazine. I think that was in maybe July of 88. And by, I think by uh, March of, uh, I think it was February of 89. I think it was done at that time. Um, so anyway, that's an older story. Let's keep going here. There she is hanging out at the carousel in um, Golden Gate Park with all of her social light friends. And what's interesting is she's front and center right there. She's front and center. There she is again. You could tell why she was taken in by these people. Right? Big smile, has a pedigree. She was still a deputy DA in Oakland. Harris joined the board of trustees of the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. She was a member of the San Francisco Jazz Organization. She was a patron dinner chair for the San Francisco Symphony's annual Black and White Ball. She was the executive director of the San Francisco's Domestic Violence Consortium. And she was the president of the board of directors of Partners Ending Domestic Abuse. She was on the board of a nonprofit called Women Count. Few women, gush the Gazette, are more involved than equally glamorous attorney Kamala Harris in the outlet distributed specifically to the neighborhoods of the rich. She was featured in a fashion spread shown wearing $565 boots, a $975 skirt, and a $1,995 coat, all made by Burberry. In the descriptions of uh, P.J. Corkery, the examiner, who also ghost wrote Brown's book. Harris was super chic and super smart and drop dead elegant and very visible. She was seen at Harry Denton's starlight room. She was seen at Jeanette Etheridge's Tosca. She went to a ball to benefit local arts museums at which celebrity event planner Stanley Gaddy's elaborate setup incorporated centerpieces of large balls of ice and was spotted sometime around midnight trying to bowl 
the Ferocity Orbs with Gavin Newsom, who was then a city supervisor, as well as a friend and business partner of the Gettys. She went to the 25th anniversary showing of San Francisco's Beach Blanket Babylon and was spotted slipping out of the after party for dinner at Jardiniere with Willie Brown and high society grand Dom Denise Hale and scenester Harry DeWilt. She went to the parties of Hutt Couture, Clothier, Wilkes Bashford. She went to the ladies' luncheons at Pacific Heights Homes. She had dinner, Sunday dinners with the Gettys. So she is fucking connected. That's how Kamala Harris begins her rise to power. She's incubated in the high society, in the jet and glamour set of San Francisco's wealthiest neighborhoods. On the arm, on, you know, on the arm of Willie Brown. This is where she gets her start. And, and people understand that she's going to go places. And they want a piece of that. And eventually she names somebody uh, ambassador of fucking, I don't know, Austria or something like that. So this is Willie Brown's baby monster. Now, her dating of powerful men doesn't end there. I wasn't aware of this, but she dated Montel Williams for a while. She went to the, I think the Emmys with him one time. So they were, she, so she, Kamala Harris was, I think, always cognizant of men in power. And even now to this day, she got married to this guy who is the vice president of one of the world's lar largest law firms. So she's always dated up, right? She's always related up and almost always with older men. Like each one of those men I mentioned to you are, are all older than her and powerful, right? So it's, it's fascinating to watch her be accepted by San Francisco high society and promoted. And for any number of reasons, right? Because somewhere down the line, they may call on her. She becomes attorney general, senator, which she eventually wound up doing. They would call on her. She could help them, right? And they could say, oh, look at her. You know, she used to, she used to be a part of our inner circle in our group when she was just getting ready to run for district attorney. We're so proud of her. It's a virtue signal. Kamala Harris is in many ways the ultimate virtue signal. And she's the personification of that ultimate virtue signal. And now she can't stop laughing. which is strange. All right. So I think we're going to close the chapter on Willie Brown and Kamala Harris. I just wanted to show you where she came from, how she kind of got to where she is today and how those connections are still very prominent, I think, in her life. And she's got even more connections with her husband. Willie Brown, again, is somebody who, even though he's a Democrat, like Willie Brown is never afraid to embrace uh, Republican power. When Donald Trump was president, he came out and said, Hey, you know, why don't you back off this guy and give him a chance? He actually said that because there's a little bit of Willie Brown and Donald Trump and vice versa. Um, 
is there anything else we want to add about Harris and Brown before we sign off with them? I think, I think that's about it. There's something I wanted to, something else I wanted to say about Kamala Harris. Oh yeah. It was her relationship with um, incarceration. Boy, she, she put a lot of minor offenders into prison. Like that was, that, that was the thing that ultimately harpooned her run for president when uh, Tulsi Gabbard just did a drive-by on her during the debate. And it's fascinating to go back and look at her uh, conviction record and who she was convicting. And really what she was doing was she was like, and these were people that were mostly, you know, coming from places like Oakland or Berkeley or Richmond, you know, or the Bayview district of San Francisco. Um, and she was stocking the prisons with labor. And so she was doing the bidding of the prison industrial complex. That's what she was doing. She was stocking the prisons with cheap labor. And make no mistake, that's a power move. And the prison industrial complex, it, you probably wouldn't have to go maybe two or three degrees of separation to connect them with people coming from places like Pacific Heights who would have shares um, in a company that would have you know, the, uh, the private prison system as part of their portfolio, whether they knew it or not. Some of them might be cognizant, some of them may not be cognizant, but that's what she was doing. She was stocking the private prison system with cheap labor. So this is, this is the, the, the dirty, nasty world of politics that combines associations and networks that come out of new money and old money and basically climbs the back of the underclass, the lower class, and the, um, the, 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 the community of diversity and kind of uses them as a platform um, for social issues, whether they believe in them or not, uh, for a voter base, whether they believe in the issues or not, and then basically doubles down and um, taps into this other world of old money, new money, society status, and then uh, using those connections for leverage and networking. You can just see it right there. It's all, it's all there. I almost, I almost swore, but it's all there. And Harris is the poster child. Brown was good. Ultimately, Harris was better. Just saying. In fact, she was so much better that after she was such a loser, such a loser on the, the, uh, the presidential campaign trail, that she was going to become vice president. She had, I think she was just like maybe slightly over Beto and the other, one of the brothers from uh, San Antonio and, and maybe, you know, a few of these other, you know, loser also rants, but not much higher. I think her, I think her approval rating was like 1.7% or she got 1.7% of the votes when she, when they had these primaries, she was terrible. And yet she was, you know, considered to be the top candidate to be vice president. It tells you all you need to know about her. 
you know, theoretically, she meets the eye test, she meets the smell test, she's got all these powerful people in her background. Do you think that that did not make a difference? When they then they tapped her on the shoulder? Of course, it made a difference. Because those people are still there. And they're still networked to her. They're still networked to Gavin Newsom. They're still networked to um, Nancy Pelosi. So did that woman, uh, Denise Hale, I remember being in San Francisco. And they, and they, they were shooting that uh, TV series with Don Johnson there. I forget the name of it. It's like, a, I don't know. So they shot it in San Francisco. It was the one with him and Cheech. Marin and Cheech was his buddy. Anyway, Don Johnson was showing up in a lot of these columns. Um, and, and I think he married like one of the daughters of one of these socialites. Like he married young. He married this young woman. He married into money, but he was always seen with Denise Hale. And uh, Nash Bridges is the show. I, I never watched it. I, I thought it was garbage. But it, but by it being shot in San Francisco, it completely elevated uh, Don Johnson because of the social scene. And then I remember one time he was busted in some foreign country. Was, was it Switzerland or Austria or some country in Europe? And he had a suitcase with all this cash. Like he was busted with a, like like something like. $500,000 in cash in this suitcase. And then you never heard about it again. It was very weird. And I also think him hanging out with Denise Hale all the time was weird because he was single. And who knows what Don Johnson was. He's, he's, he's got a weird past. He's got a very weird past. Anyway. All right. So that closes our chapter on uh, Willie Brown and Kamala Harris and the apotheosis of power politics, and to some degree, the dark underbelly of San Francisco. I'm not quite done with the dark underbelly yet. And I know that I only have like 20 minutes left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go back into Jim Jones and Jonestown. And then I'm going to introduce you to Synanon. And tomorrow we're going to have um, Howdy McCoskey on the forecast, which will be great. And that's over on YouTube. But I'm going to come back Monday. It's like, I don't do a lot of these series. I've done a few of them in the past, but I'm going to come back on Monday, on Monday's show. And we're going to dive into Synanon. And we're going to start to make some connections with Synanon, Jonestown, um, Delancey Street, and maybe we'll migrate eventually into Michael Aquino and uh, the Church of Satan. Michael Aquino is the Temple of Set, and the Church of Satan, of course, Anton LaVey. So we may eventually migrate over there, but we're going to migrate over there through Jonestown and Synanon. So let me jump into the Jonestown stuff, because remember, the People's Temple is instrumental in essentially running voting scams. Also, the People's Temple was recruiting young women. The, the People's Temple is a cult, make no mistake about it. And it's, it's um, uh, what's that group where they did flirty fishing? Uh, was the, the Children of God? 
that group, right? In some ways, it's kind of like that in that uh, Jim Jones would recruit these young women who in many cases were fairly attractive and they would, he would hook them up with people like George Moscone, probably Willie Brown and maybe young men even because Willie Brown is a switch hitter. So Jim Jones was running an operation, big time operation. He could think, think of Jim Jones as kind of like a cross between Jeffrey Epstein, uh, David Koresh, and um, that who else would I throw in there? Let's just go Jeffrey Epstein and David Koresh. That's good enough. So, so I'm going to take you into this article. Um, and it's a fairly long article. And maybe I'll just get into it a little bit today. And maybe we'll, re we'll revisit this on Monday. I do want to play you a trailer for Synanon, which is kind of mind-blowing and kind of plant the seeds here for the whole Synanon story. Now, I wanted to, I'll skip around a little bit, but this is from whale.to, which is kind of an interesting website. I think this is, uh, what, um, is this Ken Adachi's website? Whale.to, T.O. is Tonga. So Tonga, Tonga used to run these, uh, maybe this isn't the Tonga, maybe this isn't Ken Adachi's website. Anyway, Tonga used to run these, I, the whole fucking thing is so interconnected. I know the guy that set that up. Anyway, all right. So November 18th, 1978, 913 people died in Jonestown, a small compound uh, carved out of the jungles of Guyana, a small country on the northeast coast of South America. Uh, the media at the time reported that it was a fanatical group of followers. Uh, uh, let's see. A fanatical group of followers of the Reverend Jim Jones led to the jungles of South America to get away from the oppression of life here in America. They also reported that his followers willingly followed their leader into the great beyond by sipping some cyanide cocktails, like Kool-Aid. In fact, the notion of mass suicide at Jonestown had been repeated so many times that it is accepted fact. And the association is so strong that when people hear Jonestown, the first thing that pops in their head is Kool-Aid. The association is false. The source of the Kool-Aid suicide stories was the U.S. State Department, which presented the story immediately after the suicides were reported as though it was the only obvious truth. U.S. Army spokesman pronounced with complete authority, no autopsies were needed. The cause of death is not an issue here. The bodies were then allowed to rot in the jungle despite the lack of need for autopsies. Dr. C. Leslie Mutu, the top Guyanese pathologist, was at Jonestown hours after the deaths. In refusing the assistance of U.S. pathologists accompanied the teams that examined the bodies. His conclusions, Dr. Mutu found fresh needle marks at the back of the left shoulder blades on 80 to 90% of the victims. Others had been shot or strangled. A surviving witness stated that those who resisted were forced by armed guards to comply. Dr. Matu's opinion and that of the Guyanese grand jury investigating Jonestown was that all but three, only two of which were suicides, were murdered by persons unknown. If one was to go over the deaths in Auschwitz, it is almost a certainty, considering the horrendous conditions, those who were there were under that 0.2% of all deaths could be attributed to suicide. Yet if anyone was to argue that Auschwitz was a suicide camp housing a bunch of religious freaks, 
and not the compounds of murder they were. They would rightfully be condemned for intellectual dishonesty and their motives would be questioned. The suicide hoax is merely the beginning of the deception. The original death count of, was 408, an odd number to use if the number was an estimate. By the way, 408 is an area code in the Bay Area. It's the South Bay. 415, you have 415 and then 418. Um, that's kind of interesting. With the Anna claim that 700 had fled into the jungle, the final total was changed to 913. To explain this rather minor uh, difference is arithmetic. American authorities first explained that those backward ignorant Guyanese could not count. Perhaps the first official explanation of the bad math was so insulting, it was then proposed that they missed a pile of bodies, as if a pile of dead bodies is something that can be easily overlooked. Finally, the official explanation was settled. Uh, the whole question was presented. Bodies were stacked on top of each other. Of the 150 photos taken of the massacre, not one shows any body lying under others. Those who first work, worked on the bodies to release the gases of decay had to puncture the dead, making it unlikely that they missed anyone. These facts aside, one must wonder how 408 bodies, 82 belonging to children, could cover 505 others. Talk about bad math. With minor exceptions, the pictures show the dead were found in neat rows, face down. These pictures also show drag marks leading the bodies, indicating that the victims were murdered elsewhere and placed there by someone else. So this goes through a number of different things. Let's talk about um, uh, Jim Jones. These facts have led to a more likely conclusion. 408 was indeed the correct original body count. The other 505 were hunted down and then slaughtered and drank back. But who would do such a thing and why? Furthermore, why were American officials giving such deceptive answers about Jonestown? To answer these questions, one must unravel the mystery of a man named Jim Jones. Jones became a Bible-thumping faith healer using wet chicken livers as evidence of cancer he removed from by divine powers. He adopted eight children, some black, some white. Already the stench of criminal activity surrounded him. And his landlady referred to him as a gangster who used the Bible instead of a gun. Fortunately for Jones, the local police chief at the time was Dan uh, Mitrione, a friend from childhood. Mitrione kept him from being arrested and run out of town. Mitrione would later enter the International Police Academy, a CIA front for training counterinsurgencies and torture techniques. Despite having few sources for known funds, Jones found enough money to travel with his wife and family to Brazil in 1961. Coincidentally, Mitrione was there as well, having advanced quickly in the IPA. Mitrione had honed his skills at torture and assassination by practicing on kidnapped beggars. He himself was later kidnapped and murdered by guerrillas in Uruguay, an incident which became the basis of the Costa Gravas film, State of Siege. Jones made regular trips to Belo Horizonte, the site of CIA headquarters in Brazil, in Mitrione's own town of residence. Apparently, this was the only curious intelligence link to Jones. He told some of his neighbors that he was involved in the US Office of Naval Intelligence, the US Embassy, provided Jones with transportation, groceries, and a large home. Considering his dear friendship to Mitrione and the funding of his ministries in Latin America by the CIA, the theory that Jones was US intelligence asset makes quite a bit of sense. 
In any case, according to his neighbor, Jones lived like a rich man. Soon after the JFK assassination, Jones returned to the States with $10,000. In 1965, he formed the people, the first People's Temple in Ukiah, California, and set up Happy Haven's rest home without trained personnel or proper licensing. Jones Camp drew in prisoners, the elderly from mental institutions, 150 foster children, many of whom were transferred by court order. Among those who contacted him, missionaries from World Vision. Okay, this is important. An international evangelical order that often fronts for the CIA. The local chapter head to the John Birch Society and leaders of the Republican Party for whose church members conducted voter organization and fundraising activities for the Dick Nixon campaign in 1968. Jones' advisors include a mercenary from UNITA, the CIA-backed Angola Army. Also jumping on board was the Layton family, whose patriarch, UC Berkeley chemist, Dr. Lawrence Laird Layton, had worked for the Manhattan Project. Dr. Layton was also chief of the Army's Chemical Warfare Division in the early 1950s. Mrs. Layton was the daughter of Hugo Phillips, a German banker, stockbroker, who became rich representing Siemens and Halska and IG Farman, two notorious Nazi Holocaust profiteers. Despite his rather right-wing background, Jones suddenly declared himself a liberal socialist. He called himself a reincarnation of Jesus Christ and Lenin. At this point, a cloud of suspicion began to gather around his church which was staffed by jackbooted armed thugs who dressed in black uniforms. Okay, so we know that he helped run these um, dirty elections. But he knew a lot of people. He knew Rosalind Carter, Angela, friends with Angela Davis. So this gets into some of the uh, details around what happened in Jonestown and what I believe to be a hit squad that went in and um, took everybody out. Possibly Jones. Possibly Jones. We don't know. Um, but I think a lot of that had to do with what was going on in San Francisco and the, ro the role that Jones played not only, again, not only in bringing in people to vote out of district more than, you know, more than once voting with, uh, you know, the, the identities of dead people associated with them. I mean, clearly that's a, that's a big deal, right? But there's also the, the seamy dark underbelly of the sexual stuff that hooked people like Moscone and Willie Brown and others to uh, Jones and quite possibly extortion, right? So again, he's like this cross between David Koresh and Jeffrey Epstein, because he's running both of those worlds, right? Like this is a co completely bizarre story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a couple of things here. We'll take a break. I'm going to finish up Jonestown on Monday, but I'm going to play this bizarre movie trailer called Synanon, which we'll again talk about on Monday because it's part of the conversation. So check this out. One of the strangest CIA connections 
to Jonestown was a previously mentioned World Vision, an evangelical order which often fronts for the CIA. They performed espionage work for the CIA in Southeast Asia while Operation Phoenix, which we've talked about before long ago, connections to the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, the murderous project that left 40,000 people dead was in full effect. In Honduras, they maintained a presence at CIA Contra recruiting camps in the war against the Sandinistas. In Lebanon, uh, the fascist uh, phalange butchered Palestinians at World Visions camp. In Cuba, their refugee camps hosted a number of members of the anti-Castro terrorist group Alpha 66 of the Bay of Pigs fame. After the Guyana massacre, World Vision developed a scheme to repopulate Jonestown with CIA-linked CIA mercenaries from Laos. Laos, of course, was where the CIA was running its secret war during Vietnam, which for the most part was a smokescreen for the widespread trafficking of opium. One particularly important World Vision official was John Hinckley Sr., an oil man, reputed CIA officer, and friend of George Bush. You may have heard of his son. Less than four months before Hinckley Jr. became known as Jodie Foster's biggest fan, another member of World, the World Vision Order, Mark David Chapman, gunned down John Lennon in what might have been a practice run for the bigger hit on President Reagan. So you can see where World Vision has its hooks into these program killers, right? And this connection with the CIA and also World Vision's connection with Jim Jones and Jonestown. So this is all a very deep, dark, entangled web. And I'm gonna go back to Jonestown a little bit on Monday, but I'm also gonna introduce Synanon into the conversation. I'm gonna play you this very weird um, video about Synanon. And it was an actual theatrical movie um, about Synanon. Where can I find it? I just had it up here. I hope I have enough time. I've got about four minutes. Uh, let's do this. Synanon is a real corporation. Its business is junkies. Chuck Dietrich is the ex-drunk who dreamed it up and fights to keep it from becoming a nightmare. Get out of that car and shut up. Stand over there. Put your hands against the wall. Get in that cell and stay there. But nobody tells me what to do. Then, the ex-con with the killer's fist tensed so tight for a fix they bleed. Look, Betty, I don't make scenes with chicks because I've got other things on my mind. Joni, doll face with a deadly, expensive appetite. What are you, my nurse? No, just another dope fame. Zanky, the hip hophead, up from the gutter to grab anything he could get. You are a liar. You're a chick. You smell like a chick. You act like a chick. I bet you... Tastes like a chick. Reed, the guy who knows every trick an addict can pull. He used them all himself. Your husband doesn't make enough money to support both your habits, you and your boyfriend. So you go into business. What kind of business, Joni? Then one day, a friend of your husband's 
was a client of yours. No, I didn't, okay? I didn't, I didn't! Betty bought her kicks the hard way, two bucks at a time. I was what they call a swinger. I did nothing but get high and sold myself to pay for it. You love Zanke? Yes. I need him. You need him like you need a fix. I want you to stay. You want me to stay so you can get next to Joni. <laughs> Big brother. Who's dying to get her in the sack. Thank <laughs> you. 